Our text for this morning is Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, and this is the Word of God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will men rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. Will you pray with me? Father, teach us in your word that we might obey you, honor you, be changed by you, and see and find your grace. Do your will, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. While preparing for our message for this week, I was reminded of a news story that's not new anymore. It was years ago. It involved a bank robbery in the town of Lacey's Spring, Alabama. Seems that a man held up the People's Bank of North Alabama around noon on a day in the summer of 2006. And the man got away with between six dollars and $7,000. Everything was going perfectly for James Danny Lancaster, age 64, of Cullman, Alabama, except for one little detail. He left his checkbook in the bank, <laughs> and authorities apprehended Lancaster within 90 minutes of the holdup. Now, let me ask you, just very plain and simply, does any word to describe this incident come to your mind? Folks, there is no other way to say this. This was a dumb robbery, wouldn't you say? It's not smart to break the law. But it takes a special kind of dumb to break the law in that kind of public place and leave behind your identification. Well, in our text for today, we're going to see a people guilty of something that is just as foolish God will make it plain that the people of God have been attempting to rob Him. And if it is silly to rob a bank and leave your checkbook behind, it's even crazier to think that you could get away with a crime against God, the one who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and always just. But as we study this, I want you to be ready to find more than judgment on the way. God will give us reasons for hope and ways to honor Him rightly. So let's take a look. We're going to find four simple points to learn in our text for today. So you note takers, be ready for four. And the first point we'll learn this morning is this. 
God does not change. God does not change. Look at verse 6. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. If you remember where we were last week in Malachi, you'll remember that it was around the year 430 B.C., and the people of God had just accused God of being unjust. The nation was experiencing hardships. They, they felt like God owed them a better life than the life they were experiencing. They were suffering under the hands of an oppressive people, they were the Empire of Persia, and they didn't like it. And in our passage from last week, we saw that the people of Israel wanted God to show up and judge these people, the ones that Israel thought was wicked. But God tells them in 3, 1 through 5, God says, I'm faithful, I'm just, and I am going to come, and I am going to judge. But God also told them that you guys better watch out what you're wishing for, though, because you will not be able to stand on the day I come to judge because you yourselves are not faithfully following me. Well, how had the people not been faithful to God, you might ask, if you were new here? Well, all through the book of Malachi, God has told the people how they have been unfaithful to God. They questioned whether or not God loved them and was good to them in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. They failed to honor God. They failed to fear God. They despised His name, God said in 1, verse 6. They refused to offer God true worship. They offered God cheap, lame, unacceptable sacrifices in 1, 7 through 14. They turned away from the genuine teaching and study of the Holy Word of God in 2, verses 1 through 9. They were unfaithful to God by breaking their marriage vows in 2, 10 through 16. And in 2, 17 to 3, 5, they questioned whether God was just, even though they were a people who had broken God's commandments time and time and time again. Other than that, they were fine. <laughs> Keep this in mind, though, as you consider the arrogance of a people demanding, God, you need to show up and we want justice. But here's some good news to start off our passage. God says to the people, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. See, even in the face of Israel's rebellion against God, God says He doesn't change. They cannot tweak emotions in God so that God doesn't keep His promises anymore. God is constant. God keeps His word. What are some promises God had made to Israel? He promised them that he would bless them as a nation when they as a nation obeyed his commands. And he promised he would bring judgment upon them as a nation when they as a nation refused to follow his ways. So while Israel as a nation might feel mistreated by God, as Malachi expresses, God is reminding them that the reason that they suffer the hardships that they are facing is because they have refused to obey his commands. They are getting exact what they as a nation signed up for, God is not changing. But God has also promised this nation He will preserve them. 
He promised he would be forgiving toward them. He promised that he would keep enough of the nation of Israel alive that he could bring from that nation into the world a promised Savior from the nation, the Messiah, the Christ. He's going to come through the nation of Israel. He's going to come descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, through the kingship of David. And the reason that this nation that was rebelling against God had not been wiped off the map in the 5th century BC was because God was faithful and God doesn't change and God keeps his promise and God would preserve them until God brings the Christ through them. That's what God said, I don't change. And God said, because I don't change, you're not wiped out. Now, you and I change a lot. True? Y'all change a lot. You change your mind. You change your, your taste. Food you loved when you were a child is too sweet when you get old. Or, or things that were too bitter to drink like coffee when you were a child are, oh, they're beautiful things today, right? <laughs> but since we change all the time, the idea of a God who does not change has to feel a bit foreign to us. God is holy. God is not exactly like us. But listen to me and trust me when I tell you that the changelessness of God is good news. God is constant. God does not waver. When God makes a promise, guess what? God keeps it. When God says something is right, it is. When God says something is wrong, it is. God does not move the goal on us. God does not change the rules of the game on us. God is steady, trustworthy, Stable, unchanging. Now, two thoughts that you and I need to pull out from the unchanging nature of God without even doing a deep theological study of the topic. First, we should let the unchanging nature of God, the changelessness of God, should give Christians hope. God, who does not change, has made promises to us. God has promised that he would be gracious to all who come to him in faith in Christ for mercy. Aren't you glad God doesn't change? God never made that offer and then changed the rules. He will not say today, I will save you if you believe in Jesus and then change the rules. The one who comes to Jesus in faith will be forgiven. So ask yourself this question. Do you know that you are a sinner before God? Do you know that you have no hope on your own to please God? Do you know Jesus came and died to pay for your sins? Do you believe Jesus rose from the grave and is alive right now? Have you put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as your only hope for salvation? Have you asked Jesus, please save my soul and take charge of my life? Jesus promises that all who repent of their sin and believe in him for salvation will be truly saved. And God does not change. The second thing we need to see from the unchanging nature of God is this should lead us to a proper fear of God. God has also made it clear that those who refuse to come to him for mercy will face his judgment Jesus has said he is the only way one can come to God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And God does not change. Friends, remember God doesn't change. 
And let it cause you to rejoice in his grace if you've come to Jesus for mercy. And let it call you to believe in Jesus before it's too late if you haven't. Let this remind you to love God. And this should let you love God's word because God doesn't change. And the God who doesn't change has written down for you who he is, what he commands, what he loves, what he hates. And that's good because God doesn't change. Second point this morning. Repentance and faith lead to life. Repentance and faith lead to life. That's point number two. Look at verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So God lets the people know that their unfaithfulness is a long-term pattern. Since the days of their forefathers, since the days of Moses, the people have been in rebellion against God's commands. You know they've been good at rebelling ever since the beginning, right? What did they do when Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments? Worshipped a golden calf. They've known how to rebel from the beginning. But look at what God says in verse 7. You return to me and I will return to you. That is one of the most glorious phrases you can read in the book of Malachi, friends. Even though these people have been sinful, even though they've been rebellious, even though they've been wrong, God will return to them if they will return to him. If the people will repent of their sin, God will be right there to forgive them. Now, you got to stop and see the grace of God here one more time. God tells the people, return to me. You notice what other, what other stipulations he puts on that? Do you see other stipulations on that? No. That's it. God doesn't say, do extra special work to make up for your lost time. you got to buy me back. God doesn't say, only those who have been a little bad can return, but the really bad ones are left out in the cold. God says to people who are alive, you return to me, I'll return to you. Stop fighting against me. Start doing what I told you to do all along. Return, repent, trust me, and you'll find my mercy. Now guys, for all of the Bible's story, we've seen this as a truth. Turning from sin and placing your trust in the Lord according to his word leads to life. Isn't that true? In the Old Testament, in the days before Jesus, that meant that you trusted God enough to get under God's law. Today, in the New Testament, it involves trusting God enough to get under the grace of Jesus because faith and repentance lead to salvation. It always has and it always will. So trust in Jesus, turn from sin, and you'll be saved. And as we've seen all through this book, the next line just blows your mind. These people cannot imagine how it is they could need to return to God. Well, how? How would we need to return to you? So they ask God that silly question at the end of verse 7. Uh, what do you mean? What, what, what should I do to return? Well, don't you just want to say to them, how about putting aside even one piece of the laundry list of sins that I've already listed from chapter 1 through chapter 3? Right? You could come up with one if you tried real hard. But these people are so smug. They think that God owes them an easy life even though they refuse his commands. 
And God's about to show them in the next verses a way that they as a people can repent. God is going to show them how they can stop going against his commands and how they can turn to him instead. God's going to do it. But before we see God do it, I want to ask you to think with me. I want you to think with me about what going against the commands of God says about any person, okay? I want you to think with me about this. Think back with me way back to the very beginning. Think back with me to the Garden of Eden. You guys know the story found in Genesis 2, Genesis 3, right? Genesis 2, God creates a beautiful garden, perfect place, puts Adam there, gives him a wife, and gives one and only one restriction, right? One rule, one tree you guys may not eat from. Everything else is yours. This tree is mine. God gave them an abundance of good things around them. Adam and Eve did not need the fruit from that one tree in any way whatsoever. That would not diminish any of their lives if they had left that tree alone. But what happened? They took it, didn't they? And when they did, they broke the world. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And they brought sickness. And they brought death into human experience. They brought conflict and pain and sorrow into human experience. But ask yourself this question. Here's what I wanted to illustrate with. Why was the fruit such a big deal? And be careful here. Don't assume that the fruit was something magical or something notorious. The problem was rebellion. For Adam to stand and watch as Eve reached out her hand and plucked that fruit was an act of defiance. This is a pair of people saying to God, I know you have rules and standards. I know you have behavior that you require out of us as your creation. And we don't care. We will not submit. We will not be under your authority. We claim creation as ours and not yours. Is one piece of fruit a big deal? Well, in general, no. I mean... If you came to my house and took a piece of fruit, I'm probably not going to be mad. But when plucking that one piece of fruit is a declaration of war against God, it's a major deal. Now, why do I point this out? Because God's about to start talking to Israel about a way in which they are rebelling against him. And if we're not careful, we might confuse ourselves into thinking that all of the rest of this passage is only about money. It is, and it isn't, right? This passage is about the same thing that the garden was about. This passage is about whether or not the people of God are willing to obey the commands of God. It's about whether or not we will claim authority over God or we will submit to God's authority. And at every turn in life, you and I will either declare that God is our master or we will declare that we are our own masters. So let's decide right away that we want to be under the authority of God who is merciful, who is just, and who does not change. 
And now, since the people asked, let's see how God says the nation needs to repent. And we'll learn a point as well. Third point that I want you to write down here. Failing to obey in giving dishonors God. Honestly, failing to obey in anything. <laughs> but he's going to talk about giving. So failing to obey in giving dishonors God. Look at verses 8 and 9. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Y'all think with me for the second, for just a second. That, that question at the beginning of verse 8, does it not sound ridiculous to you? Will man rob God? What's the answer? <laughs> that's, that's nuts. No way. If it was crazy for a man to rob a bank and leave behind his checkbook, it's even crazier, it's totally insane for a person to think that he or she can get away with robbing God. But God tells the Jews, you're trying to. They can't even imagine how. Who, me? What could I have done? What thing of yours are we taking? That's crazy talk, God. I'll tell you this, according to verse 9, God says that the result of these people trying to rob him, robbing him, is God's curse. These people are suffering hardships because of their sin. They, God is actually letting things go bad for the nation of Israel so that they can recognize that something is wrong, turn from their sin, and return to following God. That is absolutely in keeping with the law of God that the nation agreed to follow. If you read Leviticus chapter 26, you can find that. But we need to know, how were they robbing God? Verse 8, God says they're robbing him of tithes and contributions. Or your translations might say tithes and offerings. This is just the latest command God will point to in order to prove that the nation is being disobedient. So what are tithes? What are contributions, right? The word tithe is a word that literally means a tenth of something, one-tenth. And the practice of tithing then is the practice of giving a tenth of your income for the honor of God as an act of worship and obedience. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, Abram gave to the priest Melchizedek a tenth of the spoil that he had won after a great battle. In Genesis 28, 22, Jacob swore he would tithe to the Lord. He would give a tenth of his possessions and his income if the Lord would just bring him back into his land. So I want you to notice there, giving God the tenth goes back further than the law given at Mount Sinai. And when God gave Israel his law at Mount Sinai, he included the tithe as something the nation was required to do. Leviticus 27, verses 30 and 32 read, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Verse 32, And every tithe of herds and flocks, Every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. 
So God told the people of Israel under the law that if they were going to live in accord with his law, every tenth of everything, money, produce, livestock, everything belonged to the Lord. Now, does that sound strange to you? Well, ask yourself, after all, what isn't supposed to belong to the Lord? In Israel, as God gave the people the land, you know what God let Israel know? He let the nation know they did not gain personal independent ownership of the land. The land that God moved Israel into, God was very clear, is God's land. And God was allowing Israel to live there as tenants or stewards over the land. Leviticus 25 verse 23 reads, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, God says, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. My land, I'm letting you live here. Now again, friends, you got any land that you want to say isn't God's? God declared the land to be his. And he reminded the Israelites of his ownership of the land by requiring from the Israelites the tithe. That's a great way for God to say, I tell you what, I'm going to give you all this, I'm going to give you all this produce, you give me one out of every ten back. That's what he did. Now, it might be fun to understand that there were actually three tithes that the people of Israel were required to give. One-tenth of the Israelites' income was to be given for the maintenance of the religion of the nation. One-tenth, right, went to the temple, the priests, the Levites. They're funded by the tithe. Numbers 18.28 would tell you about that. Why? Well, do you guys remember what part of the land that the Levites got? The Levites got none of the land. The, the tribe that had the priests was not given a land inheritance. So they didn't really have a method of feeding their families and taking care of things or making progress without God having other people take care of them. Their job was to take care of the temple, teach the word of God, make the sacrifices happen. And so God said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give you a land because the tithe of the people was going to go to the support of these families who were taking care of the religious aspect of the nation. That was one tithe. And by the way, even the Levites tithed. They gave a tithe of the tithe because, you know what, they weren't going to pretend like they were somehow above the rest. A second tithe that was in the Bible appears to have been taken only once every three years, Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29. And that tithe was set aside specifically for the needy in the land. The poor, the sojourner, the widow were taken care of out of those funds. So a sort of welfare system that worked, if you will. And the other tithe, the third tithe, it is the one that I would have to tell you is most interesting. Now, you all know that the people of Israel were required to attend Three key feasts annually, right? You had to go to booths and you had to go to Pentecost. You had to go uh, to uh, the Passover feast. You had to go to, the, go to where the temple was for that. When God established the, the, the place where the temple was going to be, people had to travel to that city. Religious celebration, mandatory. Well, God required, get this, that another tithe of the family's earnings had to be set aside for those journeys. 
So the people would travel to the holy place and then they used their tithe to have a giant celebration. A tenth of the income was, was set aside for a great religious vacation. Deuteronomy 14, to 27, if you don't believe me. So if you put the tithing requirement for the Old Testament together, a fair estimate would be that the Israelite had to give around 23.3% of his income. 10% was given to support the Levites and the ministry in the temple. Three and a third, so once every three years, a tithe was taken to support the needy in the land. And 10% was to provide for the family to travel to Jerusalem so they could celebrate joyfully before the Lord. By the way, how do you guys like the idea of tithing for a giant party? I've got a whole idea for next year's ministry. Uh, that's what they did. And you know what? You read the verses. It is so celebrative. It's so happy. Now, contributions in comparison to tithes, offerings, if you will, those were things that people would give voluntarily for the honor of God. The word there is the word, same word for some of the wave offerings. And that was often given, again, free will, no requirement of your percentage, no requirement of your income. It was just a thing that every faithful, faithful worshiper of God would give. We would give beyond what was required for the sake of, of worship and joy. So God says to the Israelites, you all are robbing me by not giving tithes and offerings. They were refusing to return to God the small percentage of what God had given. I mean, God had given them everything. God gave them a land. God gave them crops. God gave them produce. They wouldn't give God back the small amount that was spelled out in the law. And that was having a negative impact on the land. In fact, listen to this. Nehemiah tells us from about this same time, quote, I also found out that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field, Nehemiah 13.10. So in Malachi's day, in Nehemiah's day, same era, because the people of the nation did not give their tithes, the Levites, the people whose job it was to take care of the temple, to lead the people in worship, to teach the word of God to the people, those people had to, run, had to leave Jerusalem and take up farming because no matter what, they also had to feed their families. The nation would not provide for the priests, and the priests therefore could not do their jobs. And that might explain to you, by the way, why Malachi shows us that the priests, some of the unscrupulous priests, were willing to show favoritism to the rich, and they turned a blind eye to the poor. It might explain to us why the priests weren't teaching the nation faithfully, because they were spending all their time in the field instead of in the Word. Y'all, you see, that, that would stink, right? It hurt the people. And it brought upon the people of Israel the curse of God because the people would not give the tithe. And when they would not give their tithe, they were declaring that they would not give God what God had commanded. They would not give God his due. They were like Adam and Eve declaring that they would be their own authority and they would not submit to even that single command of God. And by the way, before you think it sounds really high, when you realize that was pretty much the entire taxation system of the nation, 23 and a third is not bad all things considered. 
Realize, friends, that refusing to obey the commands of God is to dishonor God. That's true in cases of disobedience to any moral command of God, right? God says, don't kill, and you start killing folks, that's, that, that is hatred of God. God says, don't steal, and you start stealing, that is defiance against God. And it's true in cases of disobedience to the command that God has for His people to give to the glory of God. Israel in Malachi's day was dishonoring God, robbing God, and suffering from God the exact penalty God promised they would suffer for it. Well, what then would you suggest is the solution to the problem for the people in Malachi's day? Because again, I mean, it's hard stuff, right? How in the world can they get this right? Start doing what you're told. Fourth point. Fourth point. Faithful giving honors God by showing trust and obedience. Faithful giving honors God by showing trust and obedience. Look at 10 through 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So here the final section contains a command and two promises. So let's see the command first. Bring the tithe to the Lord. Y'all, that ain't complicated. The command for the people of Malachi's day is this. You've been guilty of robbing God by not giving your tithe. Guess what? Start tithing. That, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Bring the whole thing in. Don't hold back. Then comes the first promise. God says to the people, you guys can test me. Your land has been under my chastening hand, the disciplining hand of God. Because you haven't taken the worship seriously, because you haven't given faithfully, God has chastened the land, God says. But now God says, if you will just turn away from your selfishness, if you will just start obeying my commands, God says, I will take my chastening hand away and I will meet your needs. Then verses 10 and 11 show us God doing two things to meet the needs of the people. He says he's going to open the windows of heaven. That may mean he's going to give rain when the crops needed some rain. He says he's going to protect the crops. He's going to protect the produce from the, de the devourer. That's probably some kind of locust or critter that was eating the plants. And God is going to bless the plants and bless the vines so that they will grow and that they will feed the people like they should. And God, he's not skimping. He says, I will send down blessing until there is no longer any need for him to do so. Can you imagine if you thought, man, God has blessed me so much. Okay, that's enough. Seriously, turn it off. God has allowed the people to be needy because they've sinned against him. And if they'll stop sinning against him in Malachi's day, God says, I'm going to meet your needs. It goes exactly in keeping with exactly what God said in the law given in Leviticus. One more thing God says, verse 12, then all nations will call you blessed. You will be a land of delight. So when God blesses this nation, others around them are going to see the blessing and they're going to say, oh my goodness, there is the glory of God. 
God made it clear to the people, if they would give faithfully in accord with his law, he would honor them. He made it clear that, that they, as a nation, if they would honor him in his commands, if they would obey him in his commands, God would pour out his blessing on them as a nation. And God gave them a chance to repent. God gave them a chance to see his glory. Now, here's the question. That was 430 years before Christ. What are we to do with this text? What's the principle for Christians today? Because we're not the physical nation of Israel. We are not bound by the law, at least in the same way Israel was. The law is certainly relevant. Well, let's start here. Let's get the principles right. Obeying God honors God. True? Let's learn that and keep it. Disobeying God dishonors God. That's still true too, isn't it? Okay, so let's just make, make it very clear. We always want to be obedient to the commands of God for God's glory in all things at all times. That is applicable for sure for us from Malachi. So as a Christian, if you're a Christian, I would urge you to start prayerfully thinking about how you give as worship to the Lord. Giving is a part of Christian of how you honor God. Giving is a part of how you live a disciplined Christian life. Then the question will arise, well, is the tithe a law for the Christian? Is it a requirement for the Christian? Is 10% a magic number for the Christian? Or as a friend of mine asked me the other day, well, if we're talking about tithing, should we tithe off of our net or our gross? My granddad, my country, God love him, granddad, said, well, I guess it depends what you want to be blessed off of, which I thought was a pretty good answer to that question. Ooh. Is 10% the number for the New Testament economy? I'm not going to tell you right now. I, what I'm planning on doing, Lord willing, is that maybe next week we will do a message where we look with greater clarity at the issue of giving all through the scriptures and specifically in the New Testament so we can see exactly what is said from the Bible so that we can know that we are giving faithfully. Give you a more thorough perspective. I don't have time to do that now. But I will give you a little spoiler, okay? So this is the, this is the spoiler alert for the, the message to come. Uh, God owns everything you have. True? Is there anything that is yours and not God's? It better not be. I would also suggest to you that it would be very difficult for me to imagine that you and I could honor God well while giving less today than he asked of the people under the law. Do you think you will honor God better by giving less than what God asked his people to give? Okay, let's not. I don't think 10% is a magic number. I don't think it is a legalistic requirement for you. But there are requirements that Christians give freely, cheerfully, proportionately, joyfully, all the rest. And we'll talk about that in a future message. Listen to me. God owns everything. God has not changed. God's principles are true. And all that we are and all that we have should, must belong to the Lord. But since we're not under law, we are under grace, I'm not going to say this is a percentage requirement. Give freely, joyfully, consistently as a heart issue between you and God. 
Now, for today, remember this. Faithful giving honors God by showing trust and obedience. And you should pray that God would help you remember and give faithfully so that you can show that you trust God to provide for you and that you trust God to take care of you even when you give and that you want to honor God with every part of your life. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, and that could happen, please do not hear me asking for your money. I surely am not. Because there is no amount of giving of your time or your money or of religious practices that could do anything to make anybody right with God. What you need to hear is the things we saw earlier. God doesn't change. Only repentance and faith in Jesus leads to life. So I would urge you, if you're not a Christian yet, turn from sin, turn to Jesus, and be saved. But if you are a Christian here, I don't want you to think that what I've just preached at you is only about your money. Now, don't you dare think that your money or any other part of your life is off limits to the Lord. At every turn in your life, you and I either declare that God is our master or we declare that we are our own masters. So let's decide right now. We want to be under the authority of God who is merciful, who is just, and who does not change. That should reflect in how you sing, how you pray, how you worship, how you think, how you give, how you live. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, you know I always hate talking about money. And I pray that you will guard us from any foolishness that would make us tighten up just because this is an area of our lives that you've put your finger on. Instead, Lord, I pray you'll help us to be a people who are obedient, submitted to you in all things, yielded to you in every aspect of life, committed to following you faithfully no matter what, no matter where, no matter how, trusting you in everything. You are the God who does not change. You are the God who provides. You are the God who is over all, and we worship you. Lord, take our lives and let them be for you anything that you want them to be. Consecrate us to your service. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.